Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 668 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 15th of January 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Becca Syme about intuitive writing. Do you sometimes just know when a story is right? Does something click during the writing process and suddenly things make sense? Do you lean into your curiosity and emotion when it comes to writing and marketing? If yes, you might be an intuitive writer and you can also use this for marketing. So I always love talking to Becca. So I hope you enjoy the interview and that is coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, there is a great interview on the Decoder podcast with Corrie Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, who has been on the show, about their new book, Choke Point Capitalism, which is all about how big tech companies are throttling creatives and some of the practices that are, yeah, just not great for us (laughs) and how we can break free of those shackles and try to improve things. So they mention AudibleGate, hash AudibleGate and some of those issues and also some of the problems in the music industry as well as publishing that lock creators in to bad contracts basically. Now I supported the book on Kickstarter but you can also buy it from the book website which is chokepointcapitalism.com but that interview is on Decoder podcast and links in the show notes. So Corey and Rebecca really focus on campaigning for wider scale change within the industry which I absolutely support. Of course, we need to change these companies. We need to change things to make it better. But as you know, one of my favourite things is bypassing the industry entirely and going direct. No one will ever know how many books I sell on my Shopify store, creativepenbooks.com. And the sales will not hit any rankings or bestseller lists, but the money is in my bank account and I can email the buyers directly, many of whom are listening today. Thank you for buying direct. Lots more interviews to come on this topic this year, as it seems that going direct has finally come of age in the author community. And Chris Rush has an article about it as well, which again links in the show notes, as she says, the more we writers control our own work, and that means owning our own intellectual property, and the more we are in control of our own income, the better off we will all be. Now, the article covers Kickstarter as one method of direct sales. And of course, you can sign up to be notified of mine at thecreativepen.com forward slash pilgrimage. And that will redirect to the books if you're listening in the future. Chris's article also covers Shopify. And Chris and Dean have now moved to Shopify with their store at wmgbooks.com. And Chris and Dean have hundreds of books in so many different genres, fiction and nonfiction, and some of them under different names as well. And the article also covers fan support and patronage of different kinds. And of course, thanks as ever to my patrons. So Chris says, It takes a bit of an open mind and it also takes a recalibration of mindset. Think of it this way. 
If writers throw out the dream of bestsellers and think about getting their books to as many readers as possible while making a good living at writing, then 2022 showed them the way. I realise it's not for everyone, but for the entrepreneurial writer, the world keeps opening up with more and more opportunities. And that pleases me more than I can say. Me too. And if you don't feel like you are an entrepreneurial writer at the moment, you can learn. As I often say, I have a degree in theology. I have a second degree in psychology. I do not have any degree in publishing, business, internet, podcasting, writing books, <laughs> like pretty much nothing I do in my job now is something I've had formal training in. It's just a lot of learning along the way. So if you don't feel op- entrepreneurial right now, it is something you can develop. I don't believe it's just a personality trait to be entrepreneurial. I do think it's a personality trait to be curious. <laughs> but as writers, I think we do have that curiosity anyway. So yeah, if you're interested, I've got a lot of interviews coming up on this. There's also a lot of ideas in how to make a living with your writing, one of my books, which you can buy direct (laughs) at creativepenbooks.com. And of course, when we sell direct, that doesn't mean forgetting the other platforms. Not at all. You want to be fully wide and use the platforms for discovery and bringing people over to your email list and your store. And of course, making money on those other platforms is still critical for authors. And I'm very happy if you buy my work anywhere on whichever platform you prefer. And in fact, this week, Ricardo Fayette from Readsy published a new book, Amazon Ads for Authors. Yes, I still do Amazon Ads. And I read Ricardo's book and it's actually really well structured and well thought out for people who struggle (laughs) with. I mean, there's just another language in this thing. I mean, there really is. And I struggle with it as much as anyone. So I recommend the book. It's called Amazon Ads for Authors. And yeah, you can check that out. And if you want, a course on ads. Mark Dawson's course, my link is thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. And of course, we can't go an episode without mentioning AI or chat GPT since it really is the thing of the moment. There is a good interview with a creative writing teacher, so a school teacher on the Hard Fork podcast. Great show, by the way, about how she is using chat GPT in her classroom and why she considers it assistance, not cheating. And she gives some brilliant examples of how ChatGPT is so useful for her, for her students, and how she encouraged her school not to ban it, but embrace it, as I always talk about with us too. And she says it's really useful for lots of different things, but that people who want to create will always create. And she runs this creative writing class. And she said those people, it can help them in different ways. But those people who are like us, want to write stories, want to write their own work, uh, don't just copy and paste out of a machine. And this is my experience. I do not want to copy and paste out of any AI program. I want my words and my work and my voice to be in my written word. But there's, I can use these tools for so many things that help me do that. I feel like a lot of people just assume that 
these tools are just, oh, generate amazing stuff, copy paste, or generate crap stuff, copy paste. Well, it's just not like that. For those of us who love the craft, it's not like that. And that's what she talks about. I really recommend listening to the interview. And in fact, she also says that teachers have been dealing with cheating forever. It's not like cheating is anything new. (laughs) She specifically mentions the problem of cliff notes and how cliff notes have been a way of cheating for many years. And that students, instead of reading the book they've been assigned, will just read the cliff notes. And she says they have to design things to kind of fox, outfox the cliff notes, as well as, I guess, just the internet. Or people have always paid other people to do essays for them or all this stuff. I mean, people who want to cheat and want to scam and want to do this stuff will always do this stuff. It's always happened. And yes, this will be another way that people can do it but it's not what we're doing so this is also similar to those people who email me and say am I scared now my writing can be stolen and used by AI and I'm like no I'm not scared and in fact this has been happening my entire publishing life like since I started putting stuff online in 2008 pretty much everything I mean still every single day this episode the transcript of this the blog post the video will immediately get scraped and reposted on other platforms and I've just given up trying to stop all of that but pretty much all my videos courses books blog posts since 2008 have been pirated plagiarized reposted by human scammers and human pirates even just a couple of months ago someone Actually, I don't even know how they did it on Amazon, but they managed to post a copy of one of my ebooks onto my own name. And I already had an ebook. So two ebooks appeared, one in KU and one not in KU. And obviously the KU one, that was not me. And I was like, what is going on here? Same cover. So they stole my cover. They stole my books. This is not AI. This is humans. So yeah, (laughs) basically, I'm not worried about any of this as this teacher. If you listen to Hard Fork, I'm not worried about it because you are here connecting with me on my channel, on my platform, through my voice. And enough of you buy my books and courses. Enough of you support me on Patreon or through buying through my affiliate links for me to keep creating and keep making a living. You are not supporting those scammers. You are ignoring that and you are supporting me. Now, there are billions of books and videos and music and podcasts and games and things for you to consume. And you are still listening to this. And thank you. Thank you so much. Because yes, AI-assisted creation will indeed result in more of everything. Some creations will be amazing and some will be scammy crap. (laughs) But we had a similar discussion back in 2009 when self-publishing was described as the tsunami of crap, like it really was. That's the term that was being bandied around in publishing. And people were worried that quality books would be overwhelmed by the unwashed masses, those writers who had chosen themselves instead of being picked by the gatekeepers. And of course, there were a load of crap books. There still are a load of crap books and certainly not just self-published. There's a whole load of crap books coming out of traditional publishing too. And of course, there are self-published books that scammers just scrape from the internet or are created by people who don't care about their art or about the customer. And you don't need AI for that. Although, of course, you could use it for that if you wanted to. But we don't want to do that. And the reader is not stupid. And in fact, I had a chat with someone last week and I said, look, I don't care if there are a billion billion books in the world. In fact, I think everyone should write a book. So I want a billion billion books. 
Because the reader is not stupid and we are the readers as well as the creators. We know when we love a book. We know when a book is crap. We know when we enjoy a book, find a book useful and we know when it's a load of stuff scraped off the internet with not a thought to the reader. And books (laughs) will just sink to the bottomless pit of content (laughs) of which there is much. So yeah, I don't worry about this. I just create and put my work into the world. And I have done this since 2006. I started writing. 2008, I started publishing. And so I'm saying to you today, create the books you want to create in the way you want to create them. Be ethical in your creative and publishing practices and your marketing. Be creative. (laughs) Be creative, but be ethical. And check out the Alliance of Independent Authors Ethical Guidelines for AI Usage. If we use those guidelines and we are responsible in our usage, then this is not a problem for us. So trust readers, trust your audience and support the creators you love in the best way you can, which is buy from them. Buy from their store if they have one, so you know it's really them, since, as I said, scammers target the big sites. This is why I keep encouraging you to buy from me directly as well as buy from other people directly. But don't be afraid be curious and keep creating. So in my personal update, so on the blog this week, I published an article with lots of pictures on why I ignored target reader feedback for my pilgrimage book cover design. And I basically go through my book cover design process and why I did this sort of uh, poll with my patrons. And then I completely ignored the feedback. And there was a very clear winner in my design process, but the photo was not mine and it was not of the pilgrimage route I took for any of the walks and it didn't communicate the emotional promise of the book. So I went with my favourite cover, um, which is one of my photos from the actual route. And there's a mountain to climb and the weather is more stormy. And essentially, that is much more appropriate for this book rather than a sort of sunny, blue sky, flat (laughs) outlook. Um, The book is more about personal challenge than anything else. It's essentially about overcoming challenge. That is what pilgrimage is to me. Uh, So that's on the blog. Links in the show notes. Um, But yeah, if you're interested in a cover design process that might help. I've also been doing a lot of work on my Kickstarter sales page and a big challenge is figuring out international shipping for the special hardback, paperback, large print and workbook editions. (laughs) Now I want, initially I was like, oh I'll just have ship everywhere, available everywhere, but uh, one of the biggest problems with Kickstarters is getting international shipping wrong and you can essentially blow your entire budget through international shipping if you get it wrong. So We have listeners to over 200 countries to this show, but I cannot manually enter um, shipping to 200 countries into the Kickstarter. Because you have to essentially enter shipping for manually for every single country, for every single product. So it, yeah, I'm just not doing that. So I'm setting up the biggest markets for me, which are UK, US, European Union countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. And then I will update the campaign. So as the campaign runs, you can actually update things as you go. So if... Um, 
if someone emails and said, oh, you know, I'm in Peru, I would like to buy the hardback, then I can go and find the price for Peru and add it to that level. And then people can order that. But I wanted to tell you now, because if you're listening and you know you want to buy one of my print editions and you want me to include your country, then uh, please email me. So email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Let me know which of the print editions you're interested in and I'll add your country. That doesn't mean you're locked into buying. It just means you have <laughs> the fast option. And also, I'm, I'm just interested to know which country. Now, of course, shipping is uh, a big deal in general um, and I will have uh, digital editions as well. Not a problem. So I am finding this process fascinating in terms of doing a book launch because I haven't really properly launched a book in years because I usually just finish a book, set up a short pre-order, publish the book, send a few emails, talk to you on the podcast, say it's available, maybe do some ads. Um, and I have never put out all formats at the same time. I usually launch with an ebook and a, a paperback and sometimes an audiobook, but I've never, and I've never done such a beautiful print product. Truly, this is the first, the first print product I, I've ever thought, wow, this is a beautiful book. I am really proud of this as a physical product. Um, of course, I'm proud of all my books, but I am, I'm just really proud of this. So yeah, putting colour pictures inside the books is, is very exciting and something I'm definitely going to be doing, even with my fiction, because all my fiction is based on my travels. So I have so many pictures I would love to put in special hardbacks for some, like I was thinking the other day of um, doing a, a special, well, I just, I, I have lots of books that I would like to do beautiful editions of. And you know, even if they're just on my vanity shelf... <laughs> But yes, uh, thinking about that. But um, as I mentioned, the Kickstarter will launch on the 23rd of January 2023. It will only be up for less than two weeks. And so if you would like uh, a book or I do have a limited number of one on one consulting spots, I'll also be including a new course, which I haven't even started preparing yet, but uh, that I want to do, which is about writing setting and sense of place, which is very important in a travel memoir, but also, of course, in our fiction. So, yeah, sign up to be notified at thecreativepen.com forward slash pilgrimage, and that will redirect uh, at launch. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments uh, this week. Stephen said, I'm emailing to say how much I enjoyed your podcast interview with Ros Morris on finishing a book. The timing could not have been better for me. Chris says, I sometimes listen in my sauna in the backyard. No photos. <laughs> my favourite decompress and reflection time with a friendly podcast. Thanks, Chris. And Evan says, thank you for letting me know about ChatGPT. Not only have I used it to brainstorm a new book, it helped me outline, come up with place names, character names, fix plot holes, and even come up with colours for branding my new pen name. It is so fun to brainstorm with this technology. Thank you, Evan. And those are some great examples of things to use it for. So remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Uh, email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. Today's episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. One way to reach a new audience on Kobo is through their subscription reading service, Kobo Plus. This program has been a great success and is now available to readers in Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, France, Italy, Australia and New Zealand. 
The great thing about Kobo Plus for authors is that it reaches an entirely new audience who may be trying digital reading for the first time. The Kobo Writing Life team know how important it is that authors retain control of their books, and as such, exclusivity is not required. Do you want to try out a book in Kobo Plus Canada, but not in the Netherlands? You can do that. Simply select the areas you want to be included in the rights and distribution section of your book. If you're choosing to publish wide as an author, Kobo encourage you to make your books available to as many readers as possible. And with Kobo Plus, it's a great way to gain and build an audience. Don't want to opt your books in one by one? The KWL team can bulk opt in your books if you email them at writinglife at kobo.com. And if you have any questions about Kobo Writing Life and um, publishing and marketing on Kobo, the team are really helpful. So that's writinglife at kobo.com. You can also check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you're listening to this and find them on social. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. And personally, I love Kobo. And as I said, you know, I publish super wide. I aim to be everywhere you might want a book. Uh, they have a, been a fantastic platform for me. And in fact, I just checked and um, I have now sold books in 175 countries through Kobo alone. That's just incredible. Most traditionally published authors have not sold books in 175 countries. So, yeah, I'm just thrilled. Thank you so much. If you've bought my books on Kobo, uh, however you buy my books, I'm very happy. And of course, you can find my ebooks and audiobooks on Kobo at thecreativepen.com forward slash Kobo. And that will redirect. So thecreativepen.com forward slash Kobo. And a big thanks to Tara and the team over at KWL. They are real champions for authors. Many of you will meet them at different author conferences. And remember, there is no exclusivity with Kobo in general. So that is fantastic. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. I'm especially grateful to those patrons who continue to support the show for years and months. It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. Thanks to new patrons this week, Claire Kinmill, Paula, Harry Brooks, Sharon Vidan, Leonora Teal and Alex Carver. And remember, if you support the show on Patreon, you get an extra monthly Q&A, which is sort of 40 to 50 minutes of audio where I answer your questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing, business, money, AI, (laughs) tech in general. I also share discount codes, behind the scenes info, early access and more. You can support the show with a few dollars or euros or pounds or whatever your currency is. And uh, yeah, you'll get that extra show. And uh, you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash The Creative Pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Becca Syme is an author, coach and creator of the Better Faster Academy. She is a USA Today bestselling author of Small Town Romance and Cozy Mystery, and also writes the Dear Writer series of nonfiction books. Today, we're talking about Dear Writer, Are You Intuitive?, co-written with Susan Biscoff, which was one of my books of the year in 2022. So welcome back to the show, Becca. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to talk about this topic. I'm so glad you picked this. I'm oh, good. 
Yeah. <laughs> me, me too. As I said, I love the book, and and I was reading it, going, "Oh, this is this is just me. This is so me." And oh, I wanted good. to, yeah, I wanted to bring it to my audience. We're just going to jump straight into the intuitive topic today. So let's start. Uh, what do you mean by intuition, and how does a writer know they might be intuitive when it comes to their writing? So a lot of us who are intuitive, I'm also intuitive. We know things without knowing how we know them. Uh, And a lot of that gets attributed to things like emotion or assumption, right? So if I walk into a room and I think, oh, everyone in here is very uncertain, like I just know that. And I can't point to certain data pieces of like what it is that I used. And a lot of people will say, well, you're just making an assumption. You don't know that is true. But what we found about intuition, and this is strengths related, but I'm not going to use any of the language because I want it to be more accessible to everyone. But there are certain behavior patterns that you have that allow you to gather data without knowing that you're gathering data. And they allow you to make connections between the data. So like when I assume that someone is feeling something, and I am actually an intuitive, and this is something I do all the time. I'm reading things, I just don't know that they're there. And usually with intuitives, you can wait a couple of hours and then kind of deconstruct what you were thinking in the moment and say, oh yeah, I saw this and this and this about your body language, etc. This isn't just emotional intuition, because of course, in the book, there are several right? There are several types, but in general, the intuition is the ability to know something based on data that you've taken in that you do not have the ability in the moment to point to how you know that. And almost always we say things like, well, I just knew, or I don't know why I made that assumption. I don't know why I made that choice. And that can feel extremely uncertain to people who are intuitive because people who are not intuitive will try to deconstruct that and prove us wrong or say, we don't know what we're talking about, or we're making assumptions or we're being emotional. And so I think it's really important for intuitive authors to know that is not what that means. You not being able to prove something right away in the moment doesn't mean you don't know it, or you didn't base it on data. It just means it's happening subconsciously. And then of course that affects storytelling. It affects marketing decisions. It affects ad running. It just affects every part of our author life. And let's just unpack a few of those things there. So, and it's so funny, you use language like gathering data and deconstruct. And I feel like these are almost logical words. Like Mm -hmm. I don't associate gathering data with being intuitive. Now I know what you mean, but give us some examples of how an intuitive might gather data from the world. So let's use a writing example, just because I think some of the behavioral examples are not true for everyone, but a lot of intuitives who are writers will have watched movies, read books, listened to oral storytellers who are extremely proficient at storytelling, and they will have naturally intuited the connections between plot points, and then they will write their books according to that intuition. So do I need to know what a Black moment is in order to write one? No, I don't if I'm intuitive because I'm intuiting or again, it's I'm reading the data patterns. So like, let's look on a micro level at me listening to you tell a story. My intuition is saying, oh, you dropped 
you dropped your voice here, you changed your cadence there. And that produced this emotion in your audience. So if I want to do that, and this is how people who are not intuitive, and I hesitate to use the word logical, because a lot of intuitives have latched on to the word, I am logical as a way to fight against that natural criticism we get about not having, not thinking about what we do. Um, But they'll like a lot of people who are not intuitive will say, they'll consciously say those things to themselves. Oh, you did this, or you did that, or here's that device that they use. And they can often break it apart and tell you what they're doing. Whereas most intuitives can't unless they've acquired that skill as a defense mechanism. And almost always they have to do it in, in retrospect anyway, but like you'll be watching a movie and you'll see the flavor of a particular line of dialogue that produced an emotion in you. And then you'll know once you've seen that 10, 15 times, you'll know how to utilize that device in your own writing, but you could not describe to me how you do it. And I think this is the most important part for writers is that because we make decisions according to intuition, but those decisions are actually based on previous data gathering that we were not aware we were doing. They are actually sound decisions. We just don't realize that they are because we couldn't say, oh yeah, this is you know 10% in, I have to do this thing. It just naturally happens when intuitives are storytelling because again, they've assimilated that data on such a subconscious, I would I would argue unconscious level, because it's usually inaccessible to them. And it makes them or us mistrust our storytelling capacity, because we hear people who can explain the mechanics behind why they make the decisions that they make. And again, the certainty and correctness axis, we assume that because they're so certain about what they do, and they're doing it correctly, that we have to be similarly certain and logical and intentional about what we do, instead of trusting that our intuition is already being intentional for us. Mm. And it's funny, because there are sort of psychological studies that show humans will make up a reason why we did something, even yes. though that might not actually be the reason. <laughs> so we might say, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. I wrote this because I know that at 10%, I have to put yep. in this whatever due to save the cat or whatever you like. And yep. yet that might not actually be the reason. So I guess it doesn't really matter which way, but part of this interview is really sort of talking about trusting that intuition. So I did, what mm-hmm. from the book, I, I wanted to read one of the lines, which says, right. Sure. Writing with intentional plot structure is not necessary for the story to be compelling. And that comes to a bit about what you just said there. But I feel like that, I mean, that gave me a great sigh of relief. And I'm a discovery writer. Um, Mm -hmm. So how can we avoid forcing ourselves into a plotting box when most of the writing advice around us wants us to have this intentional plot structure? Right. The crazy part about an intuitive brain is that if you try to do it intentionally, it will not work the same way. So you, Joanna, if you sit down with a plot structure that has been given to you as though this is the exact way to do it, right? And then you sit down and try to write that plot structure, it is not going to have the same compelling nature that your natural storytelling would have. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is, please, if you do not believe me, read Aristotle, like read the poetics. 
It is so the data samples that were used to define a lot of what we think about three act structure are so variable. Like the inciting incident, we nail it down to 10% because that is what we have been taught. But the reality is the plays that he was using to make some of these, and again, he didn't use the word inciting incident, but that's what's been made out of his theory. It could be 5%, it could be 20%. Like the graph of compelling story is a wider graph than we think it is. But so many of us who are intuitive, we don't trust the fact that we could write a compelling story without that. And so how do we do that? I think some of it is you have to allow yourself to do what you what your intuition is guiding you to do. Whether it's write with a tiny bit of structure and a lot of discovery or write with a lot of discovery and no structure, whatever it is, we have to learn how to trust the fact that we have gathered this storytelling capacity through the same process, it's just happened subconsciously instead of consciously. It's intention will not help us if we are wired this way. And you might have to test that on your own in order to believe me, or you could just believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like I said, when I read the book, I recognized myself in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, you know, some people won't and probably they've stopped listening already. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's totally okay. Like yeah. that's totally okay. Cause what exactly. I want to say about the people who are not intuitive is the reason people tell us you can't write without intent, without intention is because they can't. So the people who are doing this, like who are teaching this stuff have come about their theories, honestly, Not everyone is an intuitive writer. And so, of course, there should be a complete guide to not being an intuitive writer, which there is. There's plenty of them. We don't need another one. Like, there's a lot. But what we do need is more information about how to be a good discovery writer, not how to use plotting techniques to correct a behavior that is not incorrect but how to be a good discovery writer, how to use tools and tactics to get unstuck consistently, things like that, so that we're not putting undue stress on ourselves, but also we need to learn how to trust the intuitive storytelling mechanism that's inside. Yeah, and it's funny, I think maybe I didn't write my book on how to write a novel for many years because, as you say, like 95% of the books out there on story are for those who can understand (laughs) a structure Mm -hmm. and use it versus the intuitive approach. So I guess everyone who writes intuitively has at least a percentage that is discovery writing. Mm Yeah. 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 So let's just come back on this word trust, right? So Mm. you and I have been doing this a long time and I feel like I do trust my creative process. And uh, yet (laughs) I know that this would be very hard for someone just starting out because I feel Mm -hmm. like when you're for fiction, particularly finding your creative voice is very hard and you might think, oh, you know, intuitively, I want to write it this way. And then maybe you get your first edit and it's like, well, you screwed this up and this is wrong. And and then, or maybe you made it all the way to publication and the book just didn't sell or it got bad reviews. So when we talk about trusting our intuition, how do we combine that with feedback in order to become better at the craft? Where's the line? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you've nailed it in terms of the earlier you are in the process, the more you want to be at least questioning the premise of should I fully trust my intuition or not, right? Because there's a difference between I don't want to get edits, 
which is valid and also can be really dangerous. There's a difference between that level of rebellion against the system and the intuition of, no, this is what I think is the most compelling way to tell this story. And again, whether you're intuitive or not, I think you should always be developing your craft, period. But what I would do when you're getting edits or when you're getting feedback on your story is I would be asking about the quality. It Does the quality of the edit match my Um, my personal storytelling preference. Because if the editor is telling you, hey, you waited too long for the inciting incident, and when you ask them about it, they say, well, because it has to happen at 10%, then they are not the right editor for you. Like, they're just not. Because it's the question that you need to ask are things like, is there non-compelling stuff before this that I need to take out? Or am I one of those writers who writes a little bit differently? Like I have a particular client whose inciting incidents are usually around 30%. And she sells bonkers books. And every editor she's ever had has told her, you have to move up your inciting incident. You have to move up your inciting incident. And then she said, well, the numbers say differently, right? Like Mm -hmm. the number of readers who are buying my books say differently. I don't need to move up my inciting incidents. But when you read her books, they're compelling from start to finish. And I think that's the difference is we're asking questions about structure instead of questions about intuition and storytelling. Am I learning how to tell a more compelling story? Which means if I'm going to include real life or backstory or whatever it is before the inciting incident, is it serving the forward motion of the story of the reader's interest or not? And that's the kind of editorial feedback you want to look for. And of course, there are intuitive editors in the same way that there are intuitive writers. And so I would always be on the lookout for someone who is going to ask the right questions of your books and not someone who is going to only ask structural questions. And I say this in the book, which, and I'll just say it again, if structure was the only thing that made stories compelling, then you would never see a bad movie out of Hollywood ever. (laughs) Because there is nowhere that structure is more important than in Hollywood. In fact, if you've ever been edited by producers or studio execs, you know your screenplays, They will literally say, nope, this is page 10. You have to have this here. And they get very dogged about it. And then they make you change things, right? So there's this sense of, well, structure is so important. Why isn't everything that's structured well selling? Because structure is not righteous, I guess is the right word. Is the story compelling is the right question to ask. And I would say, so how do we get there if we're newer I would always try to follow the intuition that you have about the way you want to write the story and then check your intuition against someone who will tell you if the story is compelling or not. I wouldn't trend towards trying to outline first unless you literally can't think of anything else to do or your intuition is like, no, I need to know what the structure is. And then I would listen to that. But because of course there are intuitive writers who are 75% discovery. And then there are intuitive writers who are 20% discovery because their intuition, they have different types of intuition that aren't just emotional. So it's possible that you need to experiment, but I would also always listen to your own intuition first before you listen to teachers, period. 
Yes, because I guess part of our voice as a writer comes from that place that is just us. And yep. that has to come with trusting who we are and putting it out there. But I was just thinking as you were talking, like, let's even wind it back. And this is true for nonfiction as well, I think, is that, uh, so I've got my next book that's coming out. It's called Pilgrimage. And it's, you know, it's pretty- Which I am so excited about. Oh, thank you. And and it's <laughs> so, so funny because I think one of the questions people ask is, how do you know which book to write when? And- mm. Like I, I thought I would write this book when I walked my first pilgrimage and that it, it didn't happen. And then like all, even like how to write a novel, which is a completely different type of book. It's a nonfiction self-help book like you write as well for writers. And yet it was almost like I felt an intuitive sense of, okay, this book's time has come. And mm-hmm. I put things off like the shadow book, which, you know, about the darker side of, of ourselves. Again, I haven't felt right writing that for years it's been mm-hmm. kind of ticking away and ticking away and uh and yet I some people I guess would say that this is the muse and I have so many more ideas than what I can write but yeah at some <laughs> point something just says right now is the time so can you explain that <laughs> yeah so fr- from your particular perspective because you have a future forward personality like that's one of your strengths right mm. that is part of the what I would consider to be like spatial intuition, for instance, which is how do all these things fit together and how does everything move in a direction that is correct, that feels like it has alignment. And there are some personality traits that would produce something like that, uh, where if you, if and, and again, because I'm a strengths coach, um, my tendency is to go very granular, like to look at the future forward part um particularly, but so, because I can explain how I do it. I have a very similar type of intuition. Mm. And what happens is I know that I'm gathering data from listening to a writer's talk as a coach. I I coach writers all day, every day. So like I'm listening to writers talk and I'm watching the patterns and I'm seeing, oh, this is consistently coming up. And then at some point it sort of just clicks with me this is a meaningful pattern and I need to do something with this right now. But what's been happening in the background is that I've been gathering data over the course of the years and seeing the patterns come together. And then finally, the pattern becomes significant in a way that my intuition knows, but Becca doesn't. I couldn't explain to you why I wrote the burnout book when I did or why I wrote the Dear Writer book when I did. But I knew in the moment that it was like everything had come together and aligned and the book just came out. And that is the, again, it's the result of having gathered a whole bunch of data, watched a whole bunch of patterns and seen everything come together in that alignment moment where I just felt like, okay, now is the time. I don't necessarily think that it's a predictive thing. Like that because I did that, that that means it's somehow going to be more successful than if I hadn't listened. It's more like whatever purpose this book was going to serve in my life and in the lives of the people who would read it, this was the time it needed to happen. Whether it was successful or not is a different metric that we can't control. But I do think there is a an alignment to timing that is very intuitive and is based on you know who you are in the moment, where the world is. And of course, you're future dominant personality, you're also looking at what's coming and what are we going to need to hear three years, five years from now, things like that, because you're future, future dominant, so strong. 
like you're always ahead of everybody and that's not a surprise to you. But the timing piece, I think, is a combination of different types of intuition, recognizing patterns, basically, and gathering data. You just don't know it. Yeah, it's, I think you're right there. It's like you you don't know it, but what I felt with the pilgrimage book. So so you know, I had like I had like 120,000 words or something of this book. And oh, wow. yeah, like uh, sitting on that when I it was really hard. And yet as you say, I there was just some feeling that it wasn't the right time and it may not be the right time now but hey a book on pilgrimage it's it's hardly it's hardly gonna hit the top of the charts but as you say sometimes it's about us and I love that you say that because so much of the indie space particularly and the traditional publishing space is about making the sales and that's important making money is important marketing books is important but yet sometimes our intuition might tell us to write a book or publish a book that doesn't like hit big and yet yeah. I guess we have to trust that too right yep yeah because you don't ever know that like anybody who tells you that they know 100% is either lying to you or lying to themselves like one of the two but no one knows 100% how a book is going to do because this industry is run by Loki the god of chaos and it is not run by Captain America the god of logic <laughs> like it is I know Captain America is not a god but like I mean you could make an argument, but, um, but it, that's not how the industry works. It is not predictable in that way. So no one really knows what's going to happen. And again, the famous sort of quote from the random house trial is like, that's literally why they named random house, random houses, because they knew it was random and they were going to throw money at it because they thought that they could make good on investments in publishing. Yes, that turns out to be absolutely true. It is random. I mean, it's, it's when we think it's predictable, like when we see something that we're like, oh yeah, I, I knew that would take off. Then we're like, oh, it must be a hundred percent predictable. No, it's not. It's chaos. So sometimes it's predictable and sometimes it isn't. But I do think that's important to know that when we do things in the timing that our intuition is telling us, there are things our intuition doesn't know. It doesn't know whether or not, like the, to use your example, the pilgrimage book, is this the perfect time right now and not a year from now? Your intuition does not know that for sure. But what it does know is this is better timing than it was a year ago or two years ago. It's better timing than it was 10 years ago because it's you who's writing it, right? Mm -hmm. So you can never take yourself out of the equation, first of all. If a book won't leave you alone, sometimes you have to write it. And if it will leave you alone, sometimes you have to leave it alone, and, and I think we, we make strategic, intentional decision-making, we worship it like it somehow is God. But that's because we all think Captain America is in charge of the industry, and he isn't. And so if we acknowledge that there is some level of unpredictability and chance to this experience, regardless of what everyone who is successful wants to tell us, then we acknowledge that sometimes intuition is the best thing to follow because there is no predictable predictable outcome that just because I make the smartest strategic decision intentionally that I can make, that it is going to have the outcome that I want it to have because that's just not how the publishing industry works. It's so interesting though. I, think, I mean, you did actually say near the beginning that the intuition can come into things like marketing and mm -hmm. yet that then does involve 
things like money, which is more specific <laughs> than stories and ideas and muse and all of that kind of thing. So how can we both use our intuition in marketing and business, but yet <laughs> also, I guess, be a bit more pragmatic about it? Yeah, that's. I love that question because I think it gets to the risk involved, right? Like, I always think that it's important to be as cautious with risk as we can when we are risk averse, because a, a portion of the population is extremely risk averse. And so they may be less likely to take risks with their money than they would be with writing a story. And that's valid. I want to acknowledge like, it's okay to be that way. But I always want people to test their assumptions and then live by the data that you get. So if you continually try everything that every expert tells you and it does not work and you're ignoring your intuition about marketing and money in order to do that, then stop listening and listen to your intuition instead. Because the intuition is trying to tell us something about ourselves. So for instance, in marketing, there is a segment of people who are really excellent at social media. They have intuition about how to connect with people and they can utilize it and they can grow social media platforms very quickly. And then there are the, I'm just going to throw a number out that's an assumption on my part, 85% of us who are not great at it. And so we're only ever going to get middling results. And then we want to ask ourselves the question, is this actually worth my time? And if I'm watching for the results and I've given it a good try and I've done everything that I should do for long enough to expect results and I'm still not seeing results, then, or, or I can't tell the difference. And I always say, if you can't tell the difference, then it's not making a difference. So that is actually the answer itself. But some of us are so committed to doing things the smart, strategic way, quote unquote, not strength strategic, but quote unquote, smart, quote unquote, strategic that we're ignoring both the results that we're getting and also our own intuition in order to do what we're being told we should do. And I think that's actually riskier. Like from an objective perspective, if you have an intuition that is really talking to you loudly and you are ignoring it, I think that's riskier than spending $10,000 trying to learn how to do Facebook ads in a way that you are completely not wired to do. Like, I think it's a bigger risk to not listen to your intuition because we do about intuitive ads, like running ads as an intuitive author. And what we're trying to help authors realize is you do not have to look at data all the time in order to make decisions, regardless of what you have been told. If you are an intuitive author, there are certain questions that you need to learn how to ask yourself. And they're often the questions you're intuitively thinking to ask anyway, mm -hmm. which are things like, is it making me money, right? Very easy, big picture questions, but you're trying to follow a system that someone else has told you is the correct system. And so you're ignoring your own intuition at your peril. So again, I think it's riskier in marketing to not trust your intuition than it is to sometimes trust what is the quote, correct thing to do that isn't actually working for you or delivering results. Or coming back to emotion, you talked about uh, a number of times, but at the beginning, talking about the emotions around intuition. And if I hate something, then <laughs> of course, I mean, either I hate it because my intuition is telling me I hate it, or I'm just really, that's not how I want to spend my time, you know, yeah. with something I hate. And 
I think ads is a great example because I do ads, but I have a lot of outsourcing. (laughs) So so I don't have to do it myself. But talking about podcasting, I didn't know I would love podcasting. Back in 2009, when I started this show, I just thought, oh, this is interesting. Lots of authors don't know how to use any kind of tech stuff. And back in 2009, you had to use tech stuff more than we do now. And so it was like, well, I could maybe make some friends because I didn't have any friends and author friends. (laughs) So (laughs) I kind of went into this, into podcasting with a sort of intuition to try it. And then I guess over the years, I've just kept leaning in and leaning in to this as my primary marketing thing. So do you think that this has been an intuitive process that I've done through emotion, I guess? Yep. In fact, I I think that is often how it works. And I think you've nailed the word hate, which I'm always using this example in trying to talk to authors about marketing. If you hate social media, you're not going to be good at it. So either find someone to do it who is better at it than you are, or find a way to do it that you can live with, right? Whatever that is. And that might take some experimentation. But then on the flip side, when you are a curious person and you naturally want to try everything out and your intuition is, hey, let me try this thing, then often that emotion of interest or of curiosity is exactly the thing you should be following. So those people who I coached who were into TikTok really early because they love new technology and and it interested them, all strategic signs pointed to, at, at the time before BookTok became a thing, pointed to the fact that this was a waste of their time, right? But their intuition was, no, this interests me. I like it. I want to try it out. And then they ended up being among the first early adopters in book talk. So when you think about what your intuition is guiding you towards, often that interest or curiosity is either guiding you towards something that will actually be successful for you. Because again, our instincts are often the things that guide our intuition and your instincts for, first of all, like the deep thinking that you do, right? That is something that not everyone can do for themselves. So having a resource to be able to listen to where someone has deeply thought through all of these topics in the author world and can find experts and give us, you know, like that is a huge goldmine resource for authors. And because you're naturally good at that, it's a good alignment for your personality to do something like that, especially as early as you did it. And so that intuition wasn't something you could have known in the moment, but the emotional interest that you had was the intuition that you should have listened to and did, thankfully, because we all appreciate that that you did that so early. Just being able to know that like Joanna will think about this and I will (laughs) be able to go and I will be able to go and listen to her think about this or the outcome of her having thought about this deeply, because we know we can trust you to do that. Like that is a voice in the industry that needs to be heard. And because you did it, you responded to your intuition, it was successful. And I wish more of us would have that level of trust of our intuition because there are so many times when I sit across from someone in coaching and they'll say, oh, I want to do this thing. And I'm like, oh, that's such a good fit for you. Like, it's so perfect. But they keep questioning it because, oh, no, everybody says I'm supposed to do TikTok or everybody says I'm supposed to do this. And I'm like, um, everyone is wrong. Just do <laughs> just do what your intuition is telling you to do. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for your kind words. I appreciate that. And yet I would also say to people, I have certainly not 
always been this confident in what I'm talking about, or, you know, I've had all the fears that everyone has. When I started out, it was about nine months before anyone even listened to this show. It was years before I made any decent money from from my books. And so it's, I guess it's not like, oh, you follow your intuition and next week you're a bestseller. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Like you have to know on some level that you're willing to take the risk that your intuition will be wrong in terms of like my intuition of especially things like, okay, in the adoption curve of podcasting, where you got into podcasting, it's much more likely that your intuition was going to pay off, right? Than it is Mm. maybe in 2023 when podcasting has been around for two decades. And you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's a different it's a different question when you're looking at, is it naturally going to lead me to success? But what I have seen is that you will be more successful following your intuition than you will not following it. So the people who are doing things that are against their intuition, that are only because someone else says they're supposed to do it and are not seeing results. And those results make sense, right? Because Mm -hmm. I don't like it. I'm not good at it. It's not something I think is valuable. I don't see the value in it. And yet I'm being told I should do it. And so I'm doing it. That's the kind of question that I want us to question the premise of, right? It's like, should you really be doing this thing? Because what everyone says in terms of, you know, should you be doing X, Y, or Z, like, whatever it is, if you are not good at it, then no, you should not be doing it (laughs) because Mm. there's too much to do. Like there's too many potential things to do for us to do everything. And in a crowded marketplace, we have to be able to stand out at what we're doing in order to be able to use it as a selling tool because it's so crowded. Like the gold rush is over. Everything is crowded. Everything is saturated. So the rules change when there's no more blue water. When the sharks are there, we have to be better in order to get food. And that's the downside of a crowded marketplace. But the upside is there's still plenty of food around. So just like narrow down and listen to your intuition and be be willing to be better at a few things rather than trying to be half good at everything. Those are gold rush rules. I tell you, there's a lot of blue water in pilgrimage. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just, I, it's so funny because when you were talking about timing, I was like, oh, I can see it though. Like I can see why this is the right time for something like that. Cause we're all coming out of sort of the burnout era where everyone is finally listening about burnout. Like when I was talking Mm. about it, you know, four years ago, nobody wanted to hear five years ago, nobody wanted to hear about it. Because they're all like, we're fine, we're fine. That's the, yeah, we're, not yeah, we're doing out. fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, oh, just wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And now, like, now, now I'm getting calls from publishers about, like, can we please buy this book from you? And I'm like, now everybody's listening, right? But five, five years ago, they weren't. And that's why I'm like, oh, this book is going to be so good for us. Because what we need is if I'm not going to burn out, again, like if I've been through it, I'm recovering and I want to not do that again. What am I going to do instead to make sure that I don't go down that road again? And how am I going to realign myself? So things like sustainability and deeper connection and what we call like making energy pennies, where you're intentionally trying to create energy for yourself 
in order to sustain a long life and a long career. Those are going to be the topics of the next three to five years. And so you're essentially sort of like kicking that off, right? Which is, again, totally normal with your futuristic. Like, I love that. <laughs> oh, no, well, I, I'm pleased you think that. And it, it is kind of, you're, you're right. I mean, and you're talking about making energy pennies. I I think all of us, you know, exercise and being out in nature and, oh, yes. you know, walking, these are kind of human things. And yeah. also, I was narrating my audiobook earlier, so it's all in my head. But this sense that as writers, we're just in our heads all the time. It's almost mm-hmm. like we forget our physical bodies exist. I mean, yeah. even you and I right now, we're talking through the ether and it's two brains connecting, yeah. but we're not physically with each other. We're not looking at each other. It's an audio only. It's like we're two brains connecting yes. through, through voice. <laughs> and yet we have physical bodies and those physical bodies carry our brains. And so, yeah, in terms of sustainability, just b- before we finish, let's talk about that because you coach writers every day. You see writers on every spectrum of every personality type and <laughs> people who write differently and release differently and publish differently. So what do you see as your recommendations or I guess commonalities for authors who want this sustainable career? as a writer for the long term in order not to burn out? What are you seeing in terms of the best way to be sustainable? Uh, Conquering the fear that we have that we're not going to get what we want out of the career, like 100%, because the fear is the thing that's driving us to burn ourselves out. The fear that if I don't do it this way, I'm not going to make money. If I don't do it this way, I'm not going to have a long career. If I don't, like, I'm going to miss out on something if I don't do absolutely everything. And then I think the most important knowledge that we can have is that everyone in this industry who's a nonfiction person, including me, is giving you a perspective on how author life can be done. Every single one of us not the perspective on how it should be done in order to have success. And if we could just change our expectations of how we look at the people who are helping us, who are being good, helpful people, who are very sure that their way is the correct way and who should be, again, because like all experts, they've had success doing what they are doing. But the downside is from someone who's my job is to sit with authors for 45 minutes at a time all day, every day, I see the outcome of the people who have tried to do it all in quotes, right, with capital letters, and who are burned out because they were doing everything out of a fear place. And I think one of the best things that can happen in our And what burnout often does is it forces us to reckon with the fact that we were doing all of this because we were afraid my book isn't going to sell. I'm not going to be able to do this. I have this dream that I'm holding on to. And what happens if it doesn't manifest itself? And then we make a lot of our decisions about how much to take on based on fear. And we don't know it because we don't realize that our brains are wired for survival. And so anytime fear kicks in, your brain is like, well, we have to do that. Because if you're afraid of it, then that must mean that we need it in order to survive. And we don't. Like we will survive, unfortunately, if our books don't sell. We will survive, unfortunately, if we don't have a long-term career. And I mean that, unfortunately, like there are a lot of us who will not have long-term careers because the industry cannot support 2 million authors having 
six figure careers. It is not possible <laughs> for that to happen. And so the unfortunate essential pain, as we call it, is that not everybody will be able to do this. But that doesn't mean you in particular can't do it. And that fear that you might not be able to do it, or that if you don't do this, then you won't have it. That is a manipulation tactic that your brain is using to try to keep you alive. And we have to calm that fear and answer the question, like what, what will happen if in five years I have not sold more than a thousand dollars on every book that I am writing? Like if each of the individual books that I write have not made more than a thousand dollars and I have to reckon with what might happen if that happens, because if I don't, that fear is going to drive me to burn out over and over and over and over again. And that is why we're making so many of our decisions, including do I pay for this class or conference? Do I pay for this book? Do I spend money on this advertising? Do I hire this expert consultant? So many of us are making those choices out of fear and we don't realize it. And that's why when we do our like public live coaching and whenever I'm at a conference, I'm always listening for, but what are you afraid is not going to happen? Or what are you afraid is going to happen? Because if we don't deconstruct that part of yourself and calm your survival mechanism down, you're going to continue over and over again to make those decisions out of fear, and you're going to not listen to your intuition because you think it's risky to listen to it. And so I I really think, and some of this might include therapy for some of us, I'm just going to acknowledge like some of us have trauma around not getting what we want or around not actualizing our desires. And we can't just talk ourselves into letting the fear go. But some of us do just need to consistently confront the fear and make a plan for what happens and then act in spite of that fear because we are not making good decisions when we are in survival mode. Oh, you are very wise. (laughs) (laughs) It, uh, It helps that I coach people so much because I just see it literally every hour of every day, right? It's like, I feel like all I do Somebody joked that you're you're the pastor, right? Because all you're doing is like addressing these existential issues. And I'm like, <laughs> because that's what's making us act this way. <laughs> like it's sometimes we actually need spirit care because our spirit is the place where the tension is. And we're disconnected from ourselves because we're so caught up in fear. And that is literally what we need is somebody to sit with us and remind us. But it's going to be okay, though, like, but you're going to survive this, but it will be okay, but you can do this, but you have all the tools you need, because that is often what we need to hear when we can't produce it for ourselves. Like, we just need someone else to remind us what's true. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I keep reading your books and you have a fantastic (laughs) Patreon. So tell us where people can find you and everything you do online. So the quick cast, Q-U-I-T-C-A-S-T, is the easiest place to find me on YouTube. And we consistently talk about these kinds of topics there. And it's also free because everything else that I do other than the once a month public coaching is not free, but because of course, like I need to make a living, but the quick cast, I try to do as much content delivery there as I can. That's the free channel. And then beyond that, I would read the books like read the intuitive book. If if you are still listening to this, you need to go read that book. 
Mm. Uh, and in fact, here's I'm going to put the book on sale so that it's at a low price so everybody who listens can buy it. And I won't tell anybody else I'm doing this. I'm only going to do it because we're going to do this podcast. So I'm going to put the book low, a low price on sale. And I want you to just go and read the book if you're resonating with this information, because so much of how we act has to do with whether we trust other people more than we trust ourselves. And I think my goal in writing that book and in doing a lot of the work I do is to help us learn how to trust the intuition that we have because so much of our intuition is magical. Like I joke about this in the book, every single time in my life, I have tried to do something intentionally smart and strategic. It has bombed every time. (laughs) There isn't a single example of something that I did intentionally with a plan that has gone successfully. But every time I do the thing that's in front of me to do that my intuition pings about, every time, Like I just moved across the country because I showed up somewhere to do research for a book. And my intuition was like, you need to move here right now. (laughs) And I applied for an apartment like the next day and moved in the day after that. And it has been the best decision that I've ever made. And yeah, it was super risky, but I've learned about myself that my intentions are always off and my intuition is always on for me. Like it's not always the most monetarily easy thing to do, right? But it is on for me. And so my goal, I think, in this book was to help people learn how to develop that level of trust. Because for those of us who are intuitive, that's where the magic is. That's Mm -hmm. where our happiest moments are going to be. It's where our success is going to be. It's not listening to your intuition is the riskiest thing you can ever do if you are intuitive because it's the only thing that's going to lead you where you need to go. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Becca. That was great. It was so great to be here. And honestly, thank you for asking me. I love this show and I love your style and interview. It's such an honor to be here. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Becca and that it gives you more confidence to lean into your intuition around writing your stories and with your marketing choices. Definitely get the book if it resonates with you. And I absolutely recommend Becca's Quitcast and her Patreon. As I mentioned in the show, she is very wise and I find her insights help me a lot. So next week, I'm talking to Mark Recklau about how to make multi-six figures from book sales as a non-fiction author. And Mark is quite unusual as a non-fiction author, as he makes over 90% of his income from book sales themselves, whereas most non-fiction authors use other forms of income like speaking, consulting, courses and more. Mark is also selling incredibly well in translation. So we talk a lot about that. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>